Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham and I'm in space geek heaven at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. This time, I know, this time we'll be celebrating the first 15 years of the International Space Station. Also, a year after the landing, how Philae's faring on 67P and I sit down with British European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake, only weeks away from his five-month mission to the International Space Station. The closer you get to launch, definitely the more excited you get about it, but also the busier you get. And so those opportunities to kind of reflect have become few and far between. But when I do get them on the rare occasions, yes, it, does, it really still blows me away what I'm about to do. Now, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum is in this imposing concrete fortress on the National Mall, which is this really long stretch of parkland that runs through the heart of Washington, D.C. And I'm in one of the galleries here, one of the quieter galleries. This whole museum, I mean, it has everything. It has the V2 rocket, Apollo 11 capsule, Spaceship One, spacesuits. I mean, it's just all, all around us here. A section of the Space Shuttle, Space Shuttle uh, just beside me, and a model of the Space Shuttle, of course. I mean, these are real things, often real things that have flown in space. And uh, with me is Smithsonian space historian Valerie Neal, curator of human space flights here at the museum. I mean, this place really shows, I know it's aviation and space, but it shows just how important space is to the United States. Oh, indeed. I think space flight is one of the characteristics by which Americans define ourselves. Uh, it's something we did early and we did very well and something we're proud to still be involved in. Now, at the moment, we're celebrating the 15 years of continuous occupation of the International Space Station, which means there have always been people off the Earth for 15 years. So the Earth has always been the Earth minus three or the Earth minus six or sometimes even more on the space station. That's a great way to look at it. Yes, more than 300 people have been on the space station in these 15 years. And people who were born in 2000 have not yet lived in a time when a human being was not in space. That's pretty remarkable. And not just one person, but crews of three 
and six people in there continuously, 24-7, orbiting 400 kilometers above us. We can look up at night and see them there and know that they're living their lives just as we're living ours. Do you think it's really captured people's imagination now, or do we rather take it for granted? I think, unfortunately, we rather take it for granted, and a lot of people are not aware of the International Space Station at all or what its purpose is or how long it's been operating. I find that often when I mention it to people, I get a look, a quizzical look, like, what? What are you talking about? And I suppose something else this museum shows us is how space budgets come and go and spacecraft come and go. So you've got Apollo, well, we went to the moon, came back again, Apollo cancelled. You've got a massive video of the space shuttle launch showing up there now. It, it is very political, isn't it? Not just political, but I think the United States and Americans have a reputation of being a disposable society, a disposable economy. Uh, We trade in our cars often. We're always looking for the next bigger and better item. And we've kind of done that with our spacecraft, Uh, unlike the Russians who have been flying their Soyuz craft since the 1960s. We've gone through several iterations of spacecraft in that same time. Well, we're going to retreat uh, to somewhere a little quieter. This uh, gallery is just getting pretty busy at the moment. And let's just think back to almost exactly a year ago, 12th of November 2014, when this happened. Okay, so we are there and Phila is talking to us. Uh, first things he told Sue was there at the European Space Operations Centre at Darmstadt in Germany to witness events unfold as Phila landed on a comet three times as it happened. So we are sitting on the surface. Phila is talking to us. More data to come. The probe went quiet 56 hours later after delivering a wealth of scientific data from its lonely outpost. But controllers didn't lose hope. We were all excited to hear from it again in June, but the last communication was in July. It may not, however, be the last ever communication from the plucky European Space Agency lander. I've been talking to project manager for Philae, Stephen Olomek, and asked him what sort of year it had been. Very exciting, of course. Uh, First of all, the landing itself, all the exciting results we got, the analysis, um, the fact that Phile went into hibernation, uh, then all the excitement when Phile eventually woke up again in June of this year, uh, when we hoped we could really start science investigations again. Um, when we had to learn that the, it was more difficult uh, than expected to establish Radio Link again, um, when we had all the attempts now for this summer to get into contact with Fila, and it is still exciting because we are still working on future possibilities to get contact with Fila and do more science. So what happened during those, those intermittent contacts with Philae? What did you learn about the lander during those periods? Well, we got quite a number of so-called housekeeping data. So that's data of the health of the lander itself, system data, uh, not science data, though. So we learned about the status Uh, We learned about the illumination, how much power uh, the lander receives, also how much power over a day 
on the comet, the temperatures, uh, the integrity of the systems. Uh, the major problem was not, as we would have expected, temperature or power. The major uh, problem to do in, to go into a, a proper science mode again was the radio link and the communications with the Mala spacecraft. So you need a link between Philae and Rosetta to, to actually go into any science mode? Uh, yes, of course. So there is no possibility for direct link from Earth uh, to the lander, so we always need Rosetta. And we also need some possibility to command the individual instruments. Um, and then once the instruments are commanded, of course, somehow the data have to have to come back to ground. So it is essential uh, to build up radio link between the lander and Rosetta. And this turned out to be difficult, partly because Rosetta had to go into greater distances to the comet. That's particularly in the times around perihelion when there was a lot of dust and it was dangerous for the spacecraft to go too low. Um, so that, that was one of the problems. But we also faced some kind of uh, not fully nominal behavior of the communications units on board the lander. Could that be just because the where the, the position it, it's landed in, it seems to be in some sort of gully on the, on the comet? Uh, well, it could be both. Um, in, in some sense, there could be a shadowing, a masking effect by the terrain around the lander. Uh, so the antennas cannot, do not have the antenna pattern as, as they would have in free space. Uh, the other reason, of course, could be that the electronics got some damage. The lander, we have to know, was most probably very cold during this hibernation period, uh, much colder than it has ever been foreseen or has been qualified, and there could be some damage there, so it's not really working as it was in, in November it was designed to. Because we should remember, it's not meant to be where it is on the comet. It was meant to land on a relatively open, exposed area. That was the idea. That was also one of the selection criteria for the, the landing site, to be in an area which is nicely illuminated on the summer hemisphere uh, in order to go directly after these first days into what we call long-term science, so science operations based on the power generated from the solar generator. Now, since we all know, Phile has uh, hopped and, and eventually came to rest in a, in a different area. This area turned out to be very dark, uh, not well illuminated. Uh, the lander got cold, uh, not very much power was generated. But of course, the closer we got to the sun, the more power, the higher the temperature, and we always hoped it would wake up again. This, in fact, the lander did. But in the meantime, it got very cold. What do you think will happen now, then, as we come up to a year since the, the landing? Um, yeah, in the time around November, again, is a, is a good compromise in terms of lower cometary activity, which allows Rosetta to go closer to the comet and closer to the lander again. However, we are still close enough to the sun to have enough power generated uh, by Phile on the surface to be able to activate the central computer, uh, the comm system, and uh, also the instrument. So November, maybe December, uh, there is a fair chance again to, to get contact and hopefully also some more science data. Are you pleased, though, with the way that people have taken this lander, in particular, to their hearts? Uh, very fascinated. I mean, obviously, if you work on such a project for, for two decades almost, uh, you're 
emotional about it, but it was fascinating to see how the whole world was really living with the lender and eager to get more information and uh, uh, very much concerned on the fate and thrilled by whether we get data again, what would happen on the next day, uh, would it wake up again. This was uh, very nice to see this, this worldwide, I would say, enthusiasm about the lander. Stefan Alamek, and uh, if Phil A is listening to this podcast, do please get in touch. Well, we've come now to Valerie Neal's office at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. OK, you haven't got a load of space rockets in your office, but you do look out over the parkland of central Washington, D.C. Fantastic view. Uh, let's, let's have a, a quick chat about Phil A and, and Rosetta. It's a mission that really captured people's imagination. And there are a lot of those around at the moment. Indeed, I think this is a golden age for exploration in our solar system and for observation beyond our solar system. Uh, The discovery of exoplanets is tremendously exciting as well. But I think the uh, comet and asteroid missions and most recently the New Horizons mission to Pluto have really captured people's imagination, first because of the sheer achievement of going that far and precisely landing, uh, it's incredible that we have the capability to do calculations like that, to to plan it all out and have it work. Uh, But also because it's showing us parts of the solar system that have been only vague and mysterious. And now uh, Pluto suddenly is very familiar. It's a fascinating world. It has features never really imagined. And to get the sense that we actually have landed a vehicle, um, we, the human race, have landed a vehicle on this tiny object, relatively speaking. It's phenomenal to have that ability and to be able to pull it off. And I suppose it shows that you don't always need people in spacecraft to to do that. You can actually do it with robots. And look at Curiosity on, on Mars as well. We've almost humanized it. Robots have been quintessential explorers, and they've always been of service for expanding knowledge in the solar system, but they've also been very valuable as precursors or surrogates for humans. Each rover, each robot becomes more capable with its vision, uh, with its auditory capability, with its sense of touch. And the people who are currently working on the Mars mission right now with Curiosity work on Martian time, and they almost feel as if they are the robot. They're commanding the rover to go certain places and do certain kinds of observations. And that boundary line between human and machine is getting more and more blurry. I think in today's world, we think about the partnership of humans and robots in space. Each has roles that it does best, and they complement one another beautifully. Now, one of the reasons I'm here, it's not just for the podcast, it's to celebrate the uh, 15 years of continuous occupation of the space station. And that's very much humans in orbit. And does, you know, okay, rovers can do amazing things, landers can do amazing things. But do you think humans add that that edge and it actually this is what we do as as humans we go out there we explore and it has to be us doing that 
Well, that certainly has been a huge part of human history all around the world. People explore. Uh, they're always curious to know what's over the horizon, what's across the sea, uh, what's beyond that ridge of mountains. So uh, some would argue that that's just wired into humans' DNA. I don't know that that gene has ever been identified, but it's certainly a common experience. Well, Valerie, thanks for the moment. Um, sure. I have a question for you from one of our listeners on Facebook. Uh We'll come back to you. In a moment, though, man of the moment, British astronaut Tim Peake. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we delve into the world of synthetic biology, building living machines from molecular parts that can do anything you can imagine. Plus, is sociability in your genes? And our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Do get in touch with Space Boffins on Facebook or Twitter. We have big plans. We just haven't got round to them yet. 15th of December 2015 is going to be a significant day for Britain in space. For the first time since 1991, there will be a Britain in space. Tim Peake is due to become the UK's first European Space Agency astronaut when he begins a five-month mission to the International Space Station. Well, here at Space Boffins, we've been following Tim every step of the way, and it was a real pleasure to meet up with the astronaut during a break from his training a couple of weeks ago at the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne. He was in the middle of medical tests, so to be fair, it was probably a break for him too. I've had a couple of muscle biopsies, many MRI scans, x-rays, blood seems to be drawn on a daily basis at the moment. Um, lots of urine samples having to be given, uh, monitoring my temperature, my activity, blood pressure cuffs for 24 hours, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's an awful lot going on. And the muscle biopsies, they're actually taking a chunk of your muscle. It's almost like an apple core or something like that. <laughs> Not quite as dramatic as that but yes they do take a small I guess it's a maggot sized pellet of muscle yes and what's that like uh, it's actually it's um, local anesthetic so it's not painful at the time but it certainly takes about a week to fully recover now let's go back to 2009 when you were selected you were chosen for the mission in 2013 have you had an opportunity to stop and think wow this is now finally happening The closer you get to launch, definitely the more excited you get about it, but also the busier you get. And so those opportunities to kind of reflect have become few and far between. But when I do get them on the rare occasions, yes, it it really still blows me away what I'm about to do. And are there points during the training where you thought, this is absolutely amazing and it's going to be even better when I'm up on the, the space station? There are several points during the training. I've always enjoyed the training for spacewalk, um, wearing the full suit in the NBL at, uh, at Johnson Space Center in Houston, where we go underwater and train for about six hours at a time to do spacewalking. And also they have a virtual reality, virtual reality laboratory there. Now, when you put the VR um, glasses on and you're wearing the gloves, the, the system there is so cool. And it's, it's so lifelike that you can't help but think that you're outside the space station looking down on planet Earth. It's, you know, it's going past you at 27,000 kilometers per hour and you're outside either practicing a spacewalk or sometimes we practice using the, the, um, the jetpack, for want of a better, another word, which we would use if, in case we came off of the space station. So we use the virtual reality lab for those things. Have you seen the film Gravity? Do you imagine yourself as, as George Clooney floating around the space shuttle? 
Yeah, hopefully I, I'll never experience that for real. But certainly when we do the training, they do throw you off the space station tumbling at quite a high rate. And, you know, it's up to you to get yourself stabilized, find the space station and then get yourself safely back. Is it likely you will do a spacewalk? Because you have done a lot of spacewalk training. Everybody has to be trained to do a spacewalk. Now, that's part of the whole flexibility of the six-person crew, uh, should anything go wrong or for just general maintenance activities. But the spacewalking schedule is very dynamic, and it's also affected to a large degree by the visiting vehicles. And, of course, in the last year, we've had um, an orbital, a SpaceX, and a Russian Progress that haven't made it to the space station. So currently, the visiting vehicle program is very flexible, which means the spacewalk program is very flexible too. But I'm fully trained and prepared. And it's more likely if something goes wrong rather than actually built into your schedule right now? There are actually a couple of planned spacewalks during that time period as well, but they will slip if visiting vehicles schedule slips. Now, the other thing that, that is very much scheduled during your, your mission is Christmas. Uh, are you looking forward to that? That's going to be a bit, bit strange, isn't it? I am looking forward to Christmas, and it's going to happen you know, fairly soon after my, my launch and my arrival on the space station. Um, but no, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Of course, I'm going to miss friends and family, but it's going to be very soon after having just said goodbye to them. So I'll still be in that phase where everything is very unique being in space. Now, we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing on the space station in a, in a second, but I'm interested in what motivates you and what keeps you going, because this is a very long process. Gosh, I I haven't even really had to consider that because I think you're naturally motivated throughout the whole process. It's very intense. Um, You're constantly traveling. There's a lot of training in Houston, in Russia, in Japan, in Canada, and here in Cologne, in Germany. Um, You're always on the go. You're always learning new things. No two days are the same. And you just don't get a chance not to be motivated or excited about what you're doing. You must be driven, though. I mean, you must have been driven to apply in the first place, but you must have maintained that, that focus. And you, you've got a family as well. So, you know, you, you, you've got to have a life at the same time as this, this focus on going into space. Absolutely, yes. And I found that for us as a family, being based in Houston has worked very well because a large portion of my training is there, which means that actually when I'm in Houston, I try and have a a normal family life as possible. When I'm traveling, it just tends to be full on. So it's like an office job in a way. You go in, you happen to spend the day simulating microgravity in a virtual reality helmet or in a a pool or, or in a simulated space station, but then you go home at the end of the day. Absolutely, yes. When I go home, my my responsibilities as a father, first and foremost. What's been the toughest part of the training? There's a couple of things that have been really tough about the training. Um, One of them is really being able to retain lots of information over a large period of time. And and part of the trick there is also knowing what you have to retain, um, knowing what's important and what you've got documentation or you've got ground support to help you with. Uh, And learning Russian language. They're probably the two hardest things. And how is your Russian now? It's at a stage where I'm quite happy with it. Um, I'm never going to be <laughs> very good at Russian. I'm not a natural linguist, but I can certainly communicate in the, in the Soyuz spacecraft and I can read all the, the documentation that I need to. So I'm happy with it. So do you have to prioritise in your mind what is more important than other things that you've got to have? You know, you, presumably you need to know exactly what every button does, everything does in the Soyuz. You need to know all the emergency procedures on the International Space Station. There are key things you must retain. There are key things you must retain and our instructors do a brilliant job of really hammering those points home and making sure that we're very aware 
of what has to be an immediate action or has to be a memorized response. But even when you're doing sort of more mundane maintenance activities, our instructors are also very good at saying there might be a two-hour lesson, but they'll actually say you really need to know four points from this lesson, and if nothing else, take these away. So it's those kind of things that you try and you know, notch away in your memory so that you'll remember them when you're on board. So you're launched to the International Space Station in, in mid-December. What are your priorities when you're there? What's the big picture priority that you want from your, your five months on board? The big picture priority is, is first and foremost to be a good crew member, you know, um, and people have invested so much in you, then that means being able to work efficiently, accurately, conducting all of the science activities, not losing any of the science data. You know, everything is, is critically important that we do on board the space station. If we make a mistake, then that can have a really bad impact either on the maintenance of uh, you know, life expectancy, for example, of components on the space station, or a loss of science if we're running a science payload. So first and foremost, it's, it's working as a good crew member, being efficient, being accurate, getting on well as a crew. Um, but then I have some personal aims with the mission as well. Uh, obviously, I'd like to share the mission as much as possible. I would like to try and do as much educational outreach activity as much as possible. And we've got a great program that's been put together both with the European Space Agency and the UK Space Agency. And um, I'm really excited about that programme as well. What's the one you're looking forward to most? Do you know, the Astro Pi is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I've seen some of the programmes that are going up initially that the uh, kids from all ages have been programming. And there are some very scientific ones, as well as some things that I can do in my spare time just for fun. So I'm looking forward to them. And I'm also looking forward to the fact that that's going to be a very interactive experiment. I'll be actually actually able to tell people what worked, what didn't work. And we can adjust the code as the mission goes on. They can send me the new files. I can load it onto the Astro Pi and we can run it all again. Now, this is a, a variation on the Raspberry Pi. Did you have any knowledge of coding or any interest in coding before you took on this project? Very limited knowledge, but actually having said that, I think anybody who's as old as I am grew up in the days of the, the ZX81, you know, with a 16K RAM pack on the back. That fell out. <laughs> that, that fell out. And loading up your games on a cassette tape that took 20 minutes just to play Space Invaders. So, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with the concept of, of basic computing, perhaps more so than other people are today who just, you know, take the, the, the apps on the iPad. Um, so I think Raspberry Pi is brilliant what they're doing is you know going back to basics but also giving people the ability to create some really fun programs what about music on on the station music on the space station is going to be great actually there's something really interesting that i'm going to do um because a lot of people have asked me about music over the last couple of years what are you going to listen to so i've come compiled a list of 75 tracks which are my uh, favorite songs they've all got a bit of a british flavor to them or a space flavor something something uh, a bit of both actually and i'm going to have a little bit of fun with it i'm going to run a competition called space rocks on twitter so about three times a week i'm going to tweet out the, li- the lyrics to one of my favorite songs and whoever tweets back the the name of the artist and the song correctly will win a super cool Space Rocks patch, uh, only 75 ever flown in space. So I'll be giving them out when I get back. And you've, you've already on the record as saying you're not going to emanate Chris, Chris Hadfield. You're not going to, you play the guitar a little bit, but you're not going to do any of that, that sort of thing. Do you not see it as an opportunity to get better as a musician? 
I do, and I'll be doing that in my own time. <laughs> <laughs> so no, there is a guitar on board, and of course I'll be playing it. I, I love to play, but uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to release my skills to the world yet. So you won't be sharing sharing that? <laughs> never say never, but I've got no intention to at the moment. Um, one of the, I mean, the most amazing things that we've had from the space station is the images of Earth. And I mean, Scott Kelly is tweeting every day an image of the Earth. How much training have you had to have in photography to be able to take those pictures? Because presumably it's a lot harder than just pointing camera out of the out of the window. It is, yeah, and we do have a lot of um, photography training, um, several hours in NASA, and um, we've got some great people who help us with that. And the, we can also continue to learn on the job, and I think that's probably where you really gain a lot of experience. Again, I'm fortunate I'll be able to learn from Scott, uh, take some advice, and uh, Tim as well. And Jeff Williams will be coming on board after Scott Kelly. He's an exceptional photographer as well. Um, but we have some training. We've got some great cameras up there with some great lenses and, and a mixture of lenses, some from the Russian segment. That's good for the kind of 800 millimeter lenses where we would want the real good overhead close in shots. Uh, the cupola is good for anything up to about a 400 millimeter lens. And of course, you get the great earth curvature, the horizon shots and the auroras from the cupola as well. So that's another thing on your list. You've got a massive list of things you want to do on the space station, quite apart from the day job. Absolutely. There, there isn't going to be spare time on the space station, I don't think. What about the, the big picture here? Do you think more and more people are aware of the space station and the sort of work that is going on in orbit? I hope so. That's certainly the intention. And it's uh, something that has been, I think there's been a growing awareness in the UK in space in general. I mean, the space sector is doing so well, and it has been over the last five to 10 years, that it's really become um, quite prominent in terms of uh, PR and advertising. People are becoming aware of it. Uh, But more recently, of course, in terms of human spaceflight as well, I think that I hope that my mission will help to inform people about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And you've got your boss, the head of the European Space Agency, Jan Werner, talking now about a moon village. I mean, you know, it it does seem to be the the beginnings of a plan to go to the, the moon and Mars and to move beyond the space station. Absolutely. And, you know, that plan is, is not far away. We're, we're only going to extend the space station until 2024. Um, and beyond that, I would expect to see future space stations in low Earth orbit being purely commercial ventures with commercial rockets carrying science and astronauts to those space stations. And I would see the national space agencies, space agencies working together, uh, international collaboration continuing on a lunar exploration project, looking ahead eventually to a Mars exploration project. Now, I don't want to, you know, you're, you're about to go to the space station. We shouldn't really talk about beyond this. But it's not inconceivable that you could work on a, on a deep space mission around the moon, to the moon, even, you know, an asteroid or Mars. I would certainly hope that within my career frame, we will be doing lunar exploration. Absolutely, yes. Um, I'd love to think I might get the chance to be part of that mission. Um, if not flying it, then I'll be hopefully part of that mission in some other form. How do you stop from getting overexcited when you can see there's a date I'm actually going to be in this Soyuz for real on the launch pad launching into space? I think that will happen down in quarantine in Baikonur. That's probably the first opportunity I'll have to kind of slow the pace down a bit and really think about what's coming up. And, I mean, obviously you're looking, you're looking forward to it. Is there one thing of the mission itself that you're thinking, this is, this is the thing I must make sure I take a, a mental picture of when I'm, when I'm on the mission? 
I think there are there are so many things. Um, I mean, obviously, that first view of, of space, both from the Soyuz spacecraft and from the cupola window, is going to be truly incredible. Um, robotic operations, you know, seeing another vehicle coming towards your spacecraft and being involved in that whole capturing and docking is going to be great. If I got the opportunity to do a spacewalk, then that would just be the icing on the cake. It would be absolutely um, amazing experience. So I think a number of things that could happen throughout the mission that will all be incredible. And it, it is incredible. I mean, we shouldn't take this stuff for granted, should we? It, it's pretty amazing that right now there are six people living in orbit above us. It is amazing. And you, when you see the work and effort from the thousands of people around the world, from various mission control centers and training teams from all these countries that actually make it work and make it safe and effective, um, you realize how incredible it is. It, it is not easy. It's, it's no easier than it was in the 60s and 70s. You know, getting to space is hard work, really hard work. Um, but it's incredible that we achieve it. And you are presumably looking forward to it. I, I cannot <laughs> wait. Looking forward to it immensely. British European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake. His launch is due on the 15th of December. Now, a couple of things to mention before we get back to Valerie Neal here at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. I like saying that. Um, We're making a couple of programmes for the BBC that you might be interested in. For the BBC World Service, an hour-long documentary on the International Space Station. And that's going to be presented by Samantha Cristoforetti. Easter astronaut and it's due to be broadcast on the 12th of December and on the same day an archive hour for Radio 4 called When Britain Had the Right Stuff telling the largely unknown story of Brits in space and I present that one obviously not as well as Samantha but I will do my best. More details will be on our Facebook page and uh, We're also determined to tackle some of the questions uh, we've been asked on Facebook and Twitter over the next few months. But here's one, and um, I'll just read this off Facebook. It's from uh, Maurice Reviol, and uh, he posted this uh, on the 7th of October, and Avenica spotted it. Um, This is his question, Valerie. Being inspired by watching The Martian, I wonder if it was possible, just in theory, to turn the ISS into an interplanetary spaceship by adding an acceleration module that provides thrust through perhaps an iron motor or the likes and allowing longer space missions by adding a botany module as seen in the film Sunshine. Um, well, thank you, Morris. Um, I think also um, botany module Silent Running. That's the one with the famous the gardens and the and the little little robots. So is Morris onto something there? The idea, Valerie, of attaching some sort of well a motor effectively to the space station and using it as your spaceship. I mean, it's a ready built spaceship in orbit. I think that's a fascinating question, and I think that he should be in touch with NASA to share that idea. Um, I'm not an engineer, so I'll just respond uh, as um, a non-specialist in this, a non-technical specialist. But in principle, it seems like it could be possible to either piggyback uh, the space station onto some kind of uh, propulsion module or attach one at one end of the existing space station. I think The problem with an ion propulsion system, as I understand it, is that it starts slowly and uh, takes a while to accumulate speed. And the space station has these very long trusses um, and wings of solar arrays, and they're fairly delicate in terms of momentum and vibration. 
if they started jiggling, it wouldn't be a good day on the space station. But he's, he's, he's on to something there, isn't he? I mean, and this was really an idea that goes back to, well, science fiction, but also many of the early space, age, uh, space station concepts had this idea if you build something in orbit. I think the Starship Enterprise, isn't that? Was that built in orbit around the Earth and then they, they head out to brave new worlds, etc. But oh, right. the yeah. idea of assembling something in orbit and then taking it to Mars is not completely ridiculous. And there were uh, early concepts about having a nuclear-powered engine, and it never got off the ground here, literally, because of concerns about um, a mishap on the ground or during ascent that would contaminate the area. But if you could um, assemble a nuclear power plant uh, propulsion system in orbit and ignite it once it was in orbit, that might make a difference. Um, the other thing I'm thinking is you might not need a whole separate botany module like the one in uh, that was set up on Mars in the Martian, um, and you might not have to create soil and fertilizer the same way, but uh, you could repurpose one of the laboratories that is already on the space station right now, which has a, a whole rack that's growing lettuce, salad greens, you know, small vegetables, and uh, just repurpose one of those to become the garden module. Uh, we had an experiment here in the museum one time where we were hydroponically growing uh, in a simulated space station module tiny tomatoes and tiny strawberries that would have been candidates to grow in space. We harvested them and tasted them. They were delicious. They were like the pure essence of strawberryness or the pure essence of tomatoness. And we had salad greens as well. So uh, every now and then we needed to harvest from the garden, and we had a nice lunch as a result. It uh, Those kinds of vegetables are so prolific, you don't need a, a vast space to grow them in. So Morris could... Maybe he should he should put a, some sort of patent on on this idea, or or put it you know put it to a space agency. I don't know whether he maybe works in the space industry. I think I think he should get in touch with uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer at NASA headquarters um, and the whole space station program team and and say, hey, I've got an idea. Is there any validity to this? Could it work? Have you considered it? And sometimes these outside-the-agency, outside-the-box ideas really provoke thought. And he may, be, he may really be under something there. Well, Morris, thank you very much for that question. And Valerie Neal, thank you very much. I'll put some pictures of the museum on our Facebook page and a rather terrible selfie of me with British astronaut Tim Peake proving once again that I'm really rubbish. I mean really rubbish at selfies. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production supported by a grant from the Royal Astronomical Society and by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and join us next time for a bumper Christmas special. In the meantime, from the National Air and Space Museum here in Washington, thanks for listening.